In English, we call someone or something the underdog when that person or thing is perceived to have less power than the other party involved in a situation. Because we perceive that person or thing to have less power, we perceive it to be at the disadvantage, we perceive it to be of lesser status, we perceive it to be at lower chance of succeeding, and provided that there is a conflict involved, we perceive the underdog to be the victim in whatever situation. Human beings tend to naturally support and root for the underdog, and there are several reasons for this. The first reason is that most of us feel pretty vulnerable in the world. Most of us feel at the disadvantage, and most of us feel like the odds are stacked against us. And what this causes is for us to identify with and internalize the underdog. When we do this, rooting for the underdog feels like rooting for ourselves, whereas supporting the other person, who we might consider the top dog in the situation, feels like voting against ourselves. People love unexpected triumph, also. We love when people win against the odds. The reason that we love it is because it actually gives us hope regarding ourselves and our own future. Another reason is that power tends to threaten us. To generalize, people perceive that if somebody else is in the power position, they could use that power to oppose our best interests. Naturally, that makes us feel really nervous and feel like taking their power away. On top of this, we feel like somebody who's in power doesn't really need us. And we feel like, on the totem pole of life, we are less than them. Now, all of this amounts to our ego struggling immensely with somebody in a position of power. This means we tend to want to see people with power lose that power. On the other hand, when we see somebody who we perceive as lacking power, we feel both empathy and sympathy for them. We also perceive that they need us, and all of these three things enhances the sensation that there's an emotional bond between ourselves and that other person. Also, we get to feel morally good about ourselves and also in the superior position if they need our help. So the ego's just won its superiority game, right? And its morality game, it gets to feel good about itself. It makes us feel both right and good to support someone who's at the disadvantage. It boosts our self-concept. So we tend to want to see people without power gain it. Just not too much of it that it then threatens us. Another reason is that, believe it or not, people subconsciously feel pleasure at other people's misfortune whenever there is envy involved. When somebody else has more power, when they seem more at the advantage, when they seem to have a higher status, when it seems like they're more likely to succeed, when it seems like they're the victor, obviously we naturally feel envy. And when we feel envy, we feel like we want the playing field to be leveled, right? So we actually feel good when somebody we envy experiences a misfortune. We perceive it as more fair, even if that's definitely not the case. When this person we envy loses their power, advantage, status, or success, it decreases the pain we feel about what we lack and about our self-concept. On top of all of this, one of the defining features of our species specifically is care. Now, I know if you're looking around the animal kingdom, you can tell that it's pretty common that the weak, the ill, the disabled, the too old, um, any members of the species who would be defined as weaker, they often just get left to fend for themselves. You know, they get picked off by predators, or they get killed by their own kind in a survival of the fittest type of world. But in direct contrast to this survival of the fittest experience, 
our species tends to take care of its disadvantaged and take care and support its weak. When we see other species not supporting their weak, when instead other species leave them to fend for themselves, leave them to die, pick them off themselves, we tend to be horrified at this. It's not how we as people do things. It's not what we believe is good and right to do. And the reality is, is that this trait of care for the weak, it definitely plays into our species evolution, into our very survival. I mean, if we didn't have this instinct, let's just be honest, our totally feeble infants would not make it, right? Our infants are completely relationally dependent. So if we didn't have this care instinct, none of us would be here. In principle, there's nothing quote-unquote wrong with having an affinity for the underdog. But in today's episode, we're going to talk about the fact that this natural affinity most of us have for the underdog can make it so that we fall prey to some pretty big shadows. And I like to call this the underdog effect, and it's in this episode that I'm going to reveal some of these shadows to you today, so you don't fall into them. The first shadow we might fall into here is that we know that there's this tendency for people to support and get behind the underdog. And this gives us really big incentive to come across to people as the underdog, even if we aren't, so that we can gain their support, especially when it's against someone else. A person can act like the one who's at the disadvantage and is the victim, regardless of whether this is actually the case or not, and others will fall for it. Any of you with siblings have definitely experienced this one firsthand. Okay, so let's look at a family. A common dynamic is that you've got a younger sibling. And now let's say that this younger sibling acts the villain and does something negative to the older sibling. But this younger sibling knows that the way that they can win this whole situation over, when of course there's a reaction from that older sibling, is that they can get mom and dad to back them up. The way they're gonna do this is by playing the underdog. They know that if mom and dad walks in the room, they're gonna see the younger child, them, as the underdog and are gonna support them no matter what. So they exploit this tendency quite young. So here's the scenario. Older sibling is sitting there doing something. Younger sibling does something to them, so acts the villain. Um, older sibling reacts. Younger sibling automatically starts screaming, crying for mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy enter the room, don't even assess the situation, take no time to understand it, and instead simply judge younger sibling underdog. And so they get behind the younger sibling, they defend the younger sibling against the older sibling, and the older sibling is punished, regardless of whether or not the actual villain in that situation was the younger child. Now, how many of you have been in the situation in your youth and you know that in between sobs, when the parent is bringing the younger sibling out of the room, this younger sibling turns around and goes, it's because they know they've won. They've won by exploiting the human tendency to support the underdog. Now, you may feel like this type of behavior in childhood is fairly benign. Almost all of us go through it, and we like to normalize what all of us go through, right? But why don't we take the same behavior on into adulthood? Then it's not so benign, is it? This behavior becomes a manipulation tactic that people use to try to stay safe socially and to try to gain the support of others. It's especially exploited when someone is trying to gain support for themselves at the same time as rally people against someone else. This is when the underdog effect becomes your biggest ally in your game of victim control. You can use this underdog effect to deceive other people. You can actually be the one that has control in a situation. But you can lead people to thinking that you're on the underhand of a situation. 
you can be the one who's doing all kinds of horrible things to somebody else, but lead people to feel as if the opposite is true. Essentially, as long as you don't appear to be the one in power, and as long as you don't appear to be the one who is doing all these negative things to the other person, you can play the victim. You can drag people into seeing the other person, the one who you are setting up to look like has more power, or the person who at face value has more power in a situation, to be seen automatically by other people as the bad guy. When you are using this underdog effect as a technique to deceive people in your own manipulation strategy, you're quite aware that all that needs to happen is that other people need to perceive that you're the one who appears to be at the disadvantage. You know they're gonna go against the other guy. Of course, when this is happening, people suddenly start to support the person and get behind the person who's actually the one creating the problem in the first place. In layman's terms, they unknowingly have been deceived into supporting the villain and going against the true victim in the situation. So that you can get a clearer idea about this dynamic, I'm gonna give you a concrete example. What we're gonna do is we're gonna start with an intentional community. And in this intentional community, there's a woman named Tegan, who is the one who started this community. She's, for lack of a better words, the matriarch of this community, and by trade, she's a healer. Joelle is somebody who is brand new to this intentional community. She just came into it. Except for there's problems from the get-go because Joelle believes that everybody should be on equal footing. Joelle doesn't like authority very much. As a result, Joelle automatically enters into a power struggle with Tegan. She starts triangulating other community members against her, arriving to community meetings late on purpose, refusing to do the tasks that Tegan assigns her, taking every opportunity to compete with Tegan's knowledge about healing, helping herself to Tegan's essential oils, asserting that she had something better to do when she was invited by Tegan to socialize, and giving Tegan ultimatums regarding her needs. Now here's where it gets interesting. So one of these days, Tegan is in the middle of hosting a like one day yoga retreat. And what happens is that she gets called away. So all of a sudden, somebody comes into the middle of this meeting that they're having, or she's teaching, and says, we have an emergency phone call. So Tegan bounces out to take this phone call, tells the group, take a 10-minute break, just do whatever you want, I'll be back soon. But when Tegan comes back from taking that phone call, what's happened is that Joelle has taken over the group. She's taken the liberty to decide that she's going to become this new teacher, and she's now leading the group through her own version of these yoga exercises. Later that night, when they're having a community meeting, Tegan's at the end of a rope, and she decides to confront Joelle about her usurping behavior. And it's at this point that Joelle plays the underdog effect card. First, Joelle started tearing up and denied that she was in any power struggle with Tegan, and in fact, asserts her deep respect for Tegan instead. In other words, she starts to actively gaslight everyone. This is not the truth of how she feels, but right now she needs to appear as the underdog and as the good guy, so this is the strategy she's using. On top of this, Joelle asserts, I just don't understand. I just can't do any, anything right by you. I just, it's like so hard in this community because I thought you'd be excited that I came in and helped everybody after you just left them to their own devices. Guess what? The tactic worked. The rest of the community members, because they accept Tegan as the one who's in more power in the community, 
they start to see Joelle as the underdog. Not only this, she's obviously showing signs of distress, signs like she's the one in pain, and of course, because she's actively gaslighting, Tegan gets angry, right? So instead of playing into this whole dynamic, Tegan gets even more upset. Now it's at this point, Joelle's won. Hook, line, and sinker. When Tegan says, you are pulling a victim control drama right now at this minute, Joelle wins that argument. She wins that power struggle between them. How does she win it? By using the underdog effect. The rest of the community members defended Joelle against Tegan, and some of them start seeing Tegan in a different, more negative light. Joelle has succeeded in acting like the underdog to the degree that not only did she get away with everything she was doing to Tegan, she also managed to manipulate Tegan's intentional community out from under her as well as rally them around her instead. Of course, they were all pawns in a power game that was just won by Joelle against Tegan, but they were too blinded by the underdog effect to see it. They thought they were protecting Joelle, the underdog and victim, from Tegan, the top dog and villain, when the reality was in fact the other way around. To learn more about the way that people use the dynamic of victimhood to their advantage, I suggest you watch my videos titled The Victim Control Dynamic, Escaping Control Drama in Relationships, and Anger, and The False Villain Dynamic. The next thing we have to talk about, relative to this underdog effect, is the fact that we tend to use this effect in a way where we take pressure off of somebody, where pressure should not be taken off them, or we let them off the hook in situations where they should not be let off the hook. And to the opposite, we put somebody on the hook that shouldn't be on the hook, and we put pressure on them when the pressure shouldn't be on them just because we perceive that person to be the one that has more power. Essentially, we love to erase personal accountability as a result of this dynamic. There's a tendency for people to give others a pass when we perceive them to be at the disadvantage, weaker, have smaller status, have smaller chance of succeeding, and or when we perceive them to be the victim. We don't hold them accountable for what they do or don't do. We have a soft spot for perceived weakness. Guess what? It's a psychological fact that the more mistakes somebody makes, the more likable they are. And the weaker someone is, the more we tend to develop a protective affinity for them. Because of this, we feel compassion for them and relieve them of accountability in a situation. We put all the pressure and accountability on the other guy. And here's the thing. We enable dysfunction and powerlessness when we do this. So that you can see what I mean, I've got another example for you. Miriam is married to Dirk. Dirk is an incredibly aggressive man. One would say bordering on abusive, in fact. He beats the crap out of his kids. But Miriam feels way too vulnerable and weak to leave him. Miriam is terrified of conflict. And as a result, she doesn't protect her children. Because she doesn't feel capable of living out in the world by herself, instead, she focuses all her time and energy on making sure that her kids tiptoe around the household so as to not make Dirk angry. Most people are gonna give Miriam a pass because of her weakness and fear and lack of character strength but her actions had severe negative impact on her children. She enabled and acted as an accessory to their abuse for years. She was a bystander. She kept them in an unsafe environment. She actively supported and maintained dysfunction to the detriment of literally everyone involved. 
So looking at the situation, I'm going to ask you some questions and I want you to pause the frame and really sit and think about these questions I'm about to ask you. This is not just a glance over. This is one of these things where you really need to look at these questions and be like, well, where do I land with this? Here they are. Is someone accountable for their weakness? For their limits? Is someone accountable for their lack of personal power? For the character strength they lack? For their failures? For their mistakes? Or are these things an automatic pass? What I want you to be aware of, no matter where you landed with these questions, is that if the answer is yes, people will continue to use these as an excuse for the things they do and the things they don't do. Another thing is we have to seriously consider that there are very real consequences for these things. I mean very real consequences. We can definitely have compassion for someone who hurts other people with these behaviors that we might title as weakness or underdog type of behaviors. But should that absolve them from their responsibility and accountability? And should it absolve them from the consequences of their actions or inactions? I want you to consider something. Because a lot of people, automatically they give other people a pass for their weaknesses, right? Or for their limitations or, you know, these things we like to let people off the hook for. And people are like, well, you can't really hold it against them because they just couldn't, right? Or you can't really hold it against them because it's their weakness or whatever it is. I want you to consider this that somebody should still take accountability for their weaknesses, for their lack of power. And the way that somebody does this is that they never put themselves in a situation in the first place where there will be massive consequences to themselves or somebody else for those weaknesses leading to those consequences. For example, if somebody has a weakness around, let's say, loyalty, you don't put yourself in a situation where loyalty would be required from you. Or let's say that one of your weaknesses is being somewhere on time. You don't put yourself in a situation where that's going to be put on top of you. Because if you do, you let yourself and everyone else down. All too often we fall into the trap of letting a person off the hook who is the one that is actually accountable because they're perceived as weaker and therefore the underdog. And with that, we fall into the trap of placing the accountability on literally any other person around them that is stronger, more capable, and who seems to have more power. And we call it fair when it's not. Here's the next thing. This underdog effect causes us to make ourselves, make other people, and make human society weak. We undercut ourselves by doing this. If other people's power threatens us to the degree that we want people to stay just powerless enough to not be a threat to us, we keep other people down and we keep them small. If we experience pleasure when people who are at the advantage experience misfortune, we subconsciously wish for each other to experience hardship and we slow the progression and advancement of our own species. If we enable and defend weakness, lack of character, strength, and failure, we are ensuring that these traits will not only continue, they will grow. If we fail to see other people's power and fail to reflect it to them, we will fail to help them to step into their power. We are condemning them to powerlessness. 
if we see the person who has more power in a situation as the automatic bad guy, and the person who has less power in a situation as the automatic good guy, guess what? There's an incentive to stay powerless. There's an incentive to stay a victim. Or at the very least, to feign powerlessness and feign victimhood. That means we as people are actually fueling a manipulation tactic amongst ourselves. Here's another thing most of you don't think about. If we only identify with and internalize the underdog, that means we have disconnected from and are remaining ignorant to any aspect of ourselves that has more power in a situation and that is at the advantage. The underdog effect can cause us to act as an oppositional force to our own personal expansion, to the expansion of others, and to the expansion of our entire species. It can cause us to thwart our own progress and the progress of others. So all this being said, when you root for the underdog, just make sure that the underdog effect doesn't have the better view. Have a good week.